Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, sponsored by my award-winning improv classes here in Chicago, The Art of Slow Comedy, uh, where I believe to be a good improviser, to be a great improviser, you need to be believable on stage. We need to believe every word that comes out of your mouth, and the only way to do that is not worrying about being funny. And in The Art of Slow Comedy, I teach you to be real first and funny second, and then you'll be even funnier. Uh, in September, on September 8th and September 13th, I will be starting a six-week intermediate class where we focus on two-person scenes, which is the foundation of any long form. You need to know how to do two-person scenes before you can go on to be fancier with the forms. Uh, I limit my classes to 12 people, so you get plenty of stage time and personal attention. And for more information, go to jimmycorain.com for the Artist Low Comedy Classes. That's jimmycorain.com. We're also sponsored by the good people at Hotel Lincoln. The next time you're in sh- Chicago and you're looking for a cool boutique hotel that's not only improviser-friendly, it's pet-friendly as well, check out the Hotel Lincoln, the official hotel of Improv Nerd. What a show we have for you today. Our guest today is probably one of Chicago's most respected improvisers and teachers. And any time I bring up his name, people all have the same reaction. They have so much respect for this guy. And he's probably someone you've never heard of. His name is Paul Grandi. And we talked to Paul uh, the uh, the week as the I.O. Chicago was moving about one of his fondest memories of, of, of the old theater on Clark Street. We also talked to him about uh, Second City and being one of the most respected improvisers. The other thing that I liked about this interview, we talked about our relationship because we have performed together at Aramondo and Carl and the Passions. And uh, I don't remember uh, improvising with him on that team that much. And what came up for me in this interview was there's, there's a part where we talk about our relationship. And he said something like, well, you, you just thought I was a jerk or something like that. And I, 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 when he said that, I shut down because what was really going on for me was, and I'm not going to get into people's names and stuff like that, but he, he and I had a mutual friend and uh, the mutual friend and I had a falling out. And uh, which I take a lot of responsibility. I was afraid of their anger is basically what it was. They were angry at me. And anytime someone's angry at me, I run away. Um, so in my head, I thought immediately that Paul was taking the side of this person. It was never discussed. It wasn't discussed in this interview. It's, it's been staying in my head for a long time. And so because of that, I kind of distanced myself and was very, um, uh, very distant and, and very, you know, um, protective of myself around Paul. So I feel some shame. I felt a tremendous shame when it came up. And, and like I said, I shut down. And then that shame carried into the the improv. And you're probably saying, well, Jimmy, what, what did you feel such shame about? I felt shame that I, I couldn't reveal this. And I didn't know how to reveal that at the moment. And I pride myself in being honest in the moment. I pride myself in, in, in um, being so spontaneous. And I, I just felt a, a lot of shame, and, and and also just to clear things up, that it wasn't that it, he was a jerk. It was it was it was my shit in my head. So um, I, I just uh, I just wanted to uh, clear that up before we get to this wonderful interview, which I think you're just this guy, Paul Grande, 
like I said at the beginning, is somebody who was so well-respected here. And as, as you listen to this interview, you'll know why. I hope you enjoy Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd, oh yeah. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd. Take a seat, take a seat. Thanks, Jimmy. Oh, Thanks, it's so good to have you on the show. Oh, God. Thank you. Oh, my God. The I.O. is closing. Yeah, it's done. It's closed. And then they're moving to a bigger space. Beautiful space. Okay. Yeah. Um, by the time this podcast, it'll be hopefully in their new space in August, mm -hmm. somewhere in August. Is there a memory you have from the I.O., either after a show or during a show or something weird that happened? Uh, let's see. Um, I can't remember a lot of individual shows. Uh, let's just say I don't remember any individual shows. Um, I remember them, I, I remember being very proud of a fair amount of the shows that uh, I did with my, with my teams at I.O. The, the thing that I remember most about I.O., Unfortunately, is all the re all the pot I smoked there. Um, Were you a big pot smoker? I was huge pot smoker um, for a chunk of time. You know, I would be high a lot during the day, um, and I would like you know do shows high and do shows on mushrooms. I did a show like on acid once, um, and it was all fine. But um, so with that. Um, <laughs> Somebody, you know, there are these IO memories, hashtag IO memories that are coming on Facebook. And somebody posted one. Uh, what I'll miss most is the knock on the piano. So the piano, if you've been to the IO space, there's a piano in the downstairs cabaret space, and it used to be on the other side of the stage in the long hallway going back to the, to the alley. Um, someone would, you know, just on the piano and then just like, seemed like the great escape. Like, a bunch of prisoners would stand up, five of us, and we'd all kind of slowly meander back down to the, to the alley and smoke pot. Um, and it isn't so much, of course, the, the getting high as in the, the group of people, of course, that I would socialize with <clears throat> um, after shows. And that was the, that's the warmest feeling. Um, my, my friends, the, the, the great, great friends and good times and it really was that clubhouse feel it felt like not a theater it felt like our clubhouse we were the first you know established teams that were you know uh, allowed to perform there you know so we were upper echelon teams can we just say that uh so we kind of felt like, you know, we were, you know, like the big men on campus and, and these teams. Uh, and Sharna would let anyone kind of just do whatever we want. We would hang out there until 4.35 in the morning just drinking beer and, and, and talking and playing the illegal hearts tournaments. And um, What was illegal about hearts I know, that's what they're saying. <laughs> Everyone, I've seen a couple of people post, like, thank you for the illegal hearts tournaments. Like, I don't think it's illegal to have, you know, 24 people play a round robin of hearts for 200 bucks. This is what it was. Um, but it was aw it was awesome. Let, let's start with you. You fell in love with acting when you were in high school. Yes, I got uh, in trouble one time in my English class. 
and Mary Walsh, our teacher, made me and these other two uh, people serve a detention, and it had to be in the theater, uh, in the auditorium at Hinsdale Central High School, um, and they were rehearsing Death of a Salesman while we, and we had to sit there and just kind of be in detention, and I was just ended up watching this rehearsal. And it's so your punishment was watching a rehearsal of Death of a Salesman. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we can put it that way. Um, and it was the scene where uh, Biff confronts his dad, Willie Loman, in the Chinese restaurant. Spite! Spite! All that. That's the, I don't remember anything else about that line. And I was just like, well, this, is, this is amazing. Look at the, They're building scenery over there, and these people are just casually talking, and it's, you know, that sort of typical theater look of a stage half built and actors in normal clothes and being dramatic up there. And then I auditioned for the next available play right after that and kept doing them um, for the, you know, for the other, for the full four years I was there. Right. And then when you graduate, you go to the DePaul Theater School. People don't yeah. know the DePaul Theater School. It has got a great reputation. It's one it of the does. hardest schools a theater, most well-respected theater schools in the country, right? Yeah, it absolutely was. Um, and, yeah, I wanted to continue with it. So I auditioned, and I felt great. I remember my buddies driving me down to the, to the Lincoln Park campus and waiting for me outside while I, while I did this monologue. Do you um, remember what the monologue was? The monologue was from Sleuth, and, no, two monologues. One was from Sleuth, and it's uh, Lawrence Olivier's character uh, is, talk, is about to kill Michael Caine's character. I'm sorry, I don't remember the actual characters' names. Um, and I remember there was, he's threatening him with different stuff, and he threatened him with uh, a mashing niblick. And if anyone knows what a mashing niblick is, it's an old golf club. It's what they used to call the mashy something, and there were a bunch of different names. And I didn't even know what the word was, so I thought it was machete. Um, so I was saying mashy niblick, but I, I, I think I brought like a knife with me. To, like, <laughs> so that was embarrassing. And then I, uh, the other monologue was the, uh, the player uh, from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is we're actors, we're the opposite of people, um, played by Richard Dreyfuss in the movie. But I think he was called the player. Um, and I got in, and I got in. So you get in for two years. But you have to audition every year, right? No, nope, you have to be asked back every so year. So after two uh, years, what happened? I was not asked back. Me yeah. and some other fellows were on the, uh, the SS Quagmire, we called it. I was intimidated by my faculty advisor, so I never went to go see her and never kind of checked in on my progress, uh, and she never called me in. Um, but I, I was, I don't know if theater school is the best thing straight out of high school. I really don't think that you're mentally capable of achieving the emotional depths that are needed. How did you take that rejection? I was saddened by it. It's that whole feeling of being left behind from your friends. I had that for sure, um, but not for not very long. My acting teacher was named Don Ilko, and he and I formed a friendship and I lived in the, I commuted my first year from the suburbs into DePaul in the second and year. And you were I, like in Westmont. I was right? in Westmont, which is about 20 miles or so west. So I would take the Burlington Northern to Quincy Brown Line stop, take the Brown Line all the way up to Lincoln Park. That's how I learned the streets of Chicago by staring out the window. Um, and uh, some very 
funny stories about me spending my train money at Demon Dogs because I was so poor. Um, and Demon Dogs was, was, a, was right no, underneath, and the it was port. a hot dog stand. Yes. and they used to charge you a nickel for ketchup. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Oh, it used I to do. piss me off so much. But they also, <laughs> but they also charged you a dollar and twenty-five cents for a hot dog and fries. Right, and they had, so I'm not had, old, but that's right. an incredible price. Right. And they had That's great donuts timing. and great ice cream. Yes, and owned by Peter Chivarelli, who was the manager for the band Chicago. Right, and then if um, you went on the jukebox, it was free, but it was all... Chicago and right. some Frank Sinatra. Right. Yeah. And I think the Notre Dame fight song. Right, I think he was, was like a... But it was always, you'd come in there and be like, 25 or <laughs> 6 foot 4. It'd be like constantly. Or like Peter Cetera, and no one plays right. Peter Cetera. So, uh, so you were... Yeah, so I did that, and then I got, yeah, I got kicked out, so I... I my first year acting teacher, uh, in this, my second year, we formed a friendship over booze at a, at a bar, and he said some very important things to me and really made it. This is after you get kicked out. This is you after talk I get kicked to him, out. and he. So the summer of 1988, I'm still living in the city with uh, my roommate who, uh, who was accepted back. Um, and so I talked to him, and he says a couple things, and he says, whenever someone, you know, doesn't uh, 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 doesn't give you what you may expect, or doesn't treat you right. You can always consider the source. Consider the source of that person who's giving you whatever. Negative. This is what Don says. This is what Don Elko says. Yeah, and I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. Consider the source. If someone is treating me poorly, that person's an asshole. So I don't care what an asshole <laughs> thinks. So what they say, I no longer care about, and that helped a lot. And then he also said everyone that they asked back was kind of white bread, uh, kind of middle of the road. Uh, you know, look and maybe talent-wise, and that that helped a lot too. He sort of let me come to the conclusion that my talent, while not specifically what DePaul University was striving to teach, I had a different sort, and I I thought of that very deeply, and it made it, it made it all okay. So then you end up. A uh, couple years later, at Second City Northwest, That's in Rolling right. Meadows, in Rolling Meadows, and, and you, you're, you're you're starting to take improv classes. And you mm -hmm. tell me that when you were there, you were judging people, smoking cigarettes. You had an inflated ego. Yeah. Can you ex tell us a little about that? Oh, I don't know. It's it's you. It's all that stuff that you ex you you certain you set a level of expectation and stuff that you expect and what you deserve and how and how much you value yourself and in comparison to everyone else in class I had more theatrical experience so I took that to mean that I was better than everyone else I would never say it of course and I'm still a nice guy um, but uh, you know I would sit back and be like I wouldn't talk to Jimmy Doyle. Jimmy Doyle was my instructor for three of my five levels. And, and Jimmy so, was on ETC, and he, yeah, and he, he was in a resident and, company at Second yeah, City. So. Absolutely. So I'm basically, he's sitting there during class, and I'm just like, kind of, I wish I could go like, can you fucking believe these people? I know. I know. <laughs> oh, here we go. Here's what's your name, old house. Well, you know, I'm that right. guy. Um, and meanwhile, I'm doing short-form improvisation and trying to write, then we, you know, we write up a sketch. And it, it gave me, you know, confidence to perhaps maybe be the better, one of the better ones in class. Um, but it, it, it was a trap that I, that I was in for a number of years, which is, uh, I think I'm the shit. 
Well, you even you even you, you even have that as you go to to, to the I/O, right? Yes. When you study with Dell, Dell um, Close, the master of improvisation. But you, you almost, I almost get the sense like you 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 had an still had this inflated ego. Absolutely, I blew off his classes. Uh, I had him again way too early before I knew anything. So I had him for I took I paid for three. Oh, I paid for two levels and interned for one. And I probably went to maybe six classes each time, probably blowing off two What is it that you didn't connect with him back then? He wasn't teaching me anything like I knew what he should be teaching. <laughs> He's not teaching me anything. He's just talking and eating pot. And he's just telling these, he's just telling stories, and he's bleeding from his arms, and his jeans are all dirty, and this, you know, he just says, get up there and let's see what happens today. I'm like, you, that's not teaching. <laughs> um, and plus, I was, I was, I think I was guns a-blazing. I'm in the, I'm in the class, you know, I'm going, I hit the ground running, I.O., you get stage time really early, second city, you have to go through all these levels, A, E, numbers, letters. Um, but I owe, you know, you get on, you get in classes and you get on stage really quick and that's what I wanted and that's what I thought I deserved and all that sort of stuff. So I had a complete block to appreciate what was being, what was being offered to me through him. And then you get on this team, Frank Booth, which yep. was this great team. Fantastic team. Great, great team. And then at the I.O. And then you get Craig Kakowski, who is your coach. Absolutely. How does things change in terms of your style of play? Because you describe yourself as a joke machine. Yeah. Um, he uh, told me to stop swearing. A specific note was stop swearing. Um, <laughs> and I have forwarded that note to many a, a, a student and many a, a coached ensemble member of when I was coaching teams. He approached the work with such dedication and an, an actor's approach with intelligence and his demeanor was so calm that, and he was wildly successful and fantastic at it because I would watch him on his team, Mr. Blonde, and I would be blown away by the response that he got, you know, so I wanted some of that. Um, but his, his work seemed so effortless that I began to just relax and enjoy and not push so hard. I tell students this, and I'm, you have to ask some of my teammates, but I think I was that guy on your improv team. I think I was that asshole for like a year or maybe a couple of years <laughs> of you know, doing all the edits and initiating scenes more often than not. And driving heralds and driving my point of view and I think those those first you know those first name was hopefully it didn't last in a year I'm, maybe I'm dramatic dramatic dramaticizing it what is it anyway Dram uh, I'm, I don't know. yeah I'm making too much out of it it was probably shorter than that because Craig set me straight um, and I set myself straight to be more open uh, so then it turned and then there was that epiphany and it turns and Doing is non-doing. I'm reading some Taoism and the Tao is Tao Poo and stuff like that, and become the uncarved block. Um, I just allow things to happen to you and respond in the moment, and stay in the present and become of the earth. And it completely changed my 
uh, my performance style. And what would you describe your performance style now? Hmm. Now, um, I milk the sincerity of character portrayal. I use it to get responses, because I'm still an actor who wants the responses from the audience. Um, I, uh, I love the contrast of sincerely and authentically acted characters while saying uh, unrealistic things. So I, I believe Brian Stack says it's something about playing the emotional realities. Do you, is this anything that sounds I don't know, familiar? Throw it out. So yeah, thanks. Uh, emotional realities is you you feel you first you have to make the choice to feel whatever you know character you're playing, and when you begin to act the feelings that you've chosen, the appropriate feelings, then and your emotional quotient of your portrayal is higher than than most, then you can adjust and shift your emotional level of your character during the course of the scene to create that comedy of contrast. You shouldn't be feeling that now. You should be feeling this appropriate. And you were feeling that appropriate one. You reeled me in and you created my sense of disbelief as, a, as, a, as an audience member. And then you twisted your emotional reality and you've You've gotten you've you've rung a a memory bell in me as an audience member, and I and I have to laugh at that. So, it's an authentic. It's a, it starts off as an authentic actor would approach making things up, and then it would go towards making the small comedic choices that take it from reality into a more comedic reality. But, but it almost sounds like it starts with the emotion. It's you're, you're starting as an actor versus absolutely. I start off with a firm. A, a strong desire to present somebody other than myself, somebody who might sound different, but definitely has a different point of view. And do you do me. that when you do characters? Do you do it through just a voice? Do you do it through I'll physicality? I do it through uh, physicality and voice. Uh, not both, uh, either. Okay. Either voice or, or, or physicality. Okay. Yes. Um, you auditioned for the Second City Touring Comedy six times. Uh, I think, yeah. Th that's not including callbacks. Okay. And you said it was basically just to get a paycheck. Yeah, um, you know, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a working actor, and of course, I wanted to be on main stage because I'm from Chicago, so I've seen main stage shows before I started taking classes at Second City. And actually, I stopped seeing main stage shows once I started, when I, once I became a student, and then picked it back up after I started taking classes at, at I.O., classes at I.O. Um, yeah, it was just a, a paycheck. I didn't, and maybe to be on main stage. So it wasn't like I've got to become a Turco member to hone my craft so that I will become good enough and worthy of being on main stage. Mm -hmm. I was more desperate to get out of my regular job than any sort of artistic reasons for for wanting to start touring with Second City. You also described that time in the 90s mm -hmm. as the golden age of improv. Yeah. Can you explain that? That's because I'm watching people like Jimmy and Kevin Dorff and Brian Stack and Adam McKay and Neil Flynn and Matt Besser and all those UCB guys and, uh, and uh, uh, Teresa Mulligan and, um, uh, and Messing and, you know, I don't want to mention the women, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, well, we had Polar and Tina Fey. They were part of my generation, so they weren't the golden age. Okay. So I'm talking about because Polar and Amy and I were all on teams 
up at I.O. So we're all on the new teams so it's when team we get to the new right, space. Okay. So it is. So it's Dratch was there. Um, and uh, um, I can't even, what was Brian Stack's wife? Uh, Miriam Tolan. Um, yeah, and that like, and they, you guys, without ever, no one else is doing it. It is groundbreaking improvisation done without so much the game style, that, that finding the game of the scene and the, and the quick uh, UCB style of, of playing. It is a much more grounded, uh, theatrical presentation of hilarious comedy. Great character work revolved around such intelligence of form that using the idea of the callback and throwing threads of connection that I have never, I didn't even know existed until I saw the family do their first deconstruction and their first herald. And the family, for people that don't know, were an I.O. house team. And That's it was, right. Uh, Matt Besser, Ian Roberts, Adam McKay, Ali Faranakian, uh, Neil Rick Flynn, Flynn. Uh, Rick Roman, who died. Yep. Uh, am I leaving? Am I Dratch was in it for a little while. Yeah, Rachel Dratch was in it um, at the beginning. Yeah. I think it was maybe just those five, and they would work so hard after their herald. They were all sweating, and they, they, it was such a beautiful piece of, of theater that, and then when they were doing the Armando, because I saw Jazz Freddie maybe once, maybe twice, but I'm, now then I'm on my team, and I'm a little bit self-involved with my own lifestyle right. and finding my paycheck and going to work and rehearsing with my team and loving that and doing my show once every two weeks uh, at I.O., um, so I didn't see Jazz Freddie a lot, but then they all came back to do Armando. Right. And then it's... So Armando, so, so Armando at that time, the family, all those guys we just talked about, right. and then Jazz Freddie, which was Noah Gregoropoulos and Dave Keckner and uh, yeah. Brian Stack yeah. and... And, and uh, Dorf. And, and Dorf. Yeah. They all came together. Yeah. And that show, when it started, I, I don't know how you feel about it, was when I was doing it, I was intimidated. I was totally scared to be up on that stage. Uh, I, I, you, I can understand. You know? Yeah. Um, and that, and you said that the show, you started to see it at 92, 92 to about 99. It, mm -hmm. it was the, you, you described it as? Uh, I described it as the main stage of improvisation. So if you were at the I.O. and you got to do Armando, it was like being on the main stage of Second City. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so, so it started at 92. When do you get to do it? I get in at about 96, let's just say 96, 97. And tell people how you got to do Armando, because it was a very, like, it wasn't an easy process to get on Armando. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. You would, as it is now, you would sit at the bar, and, you know, once you became somewhat established at I.O., uh, you've chant, by chance, talked to Noah or something like that. And you'd sit at the bar and you'd, sometimes he'd pick uh, of the younger generation. Uh, and I was, that was never me. So you would go to the bar with the intention that you hopefully you'd be picked by Noah. Well, to watch the show. And well, I mean, come that, on. But also, oh, with the hope? Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. But then I somehow am at the Damon, which is now the Riverview on Roscoe and Damon, and I always having a, 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 a scheduled performance, uh, or not, whatever, uh, a corporate show or whatever of the, Arma of the Armando, and I'm asked to do that, an outside, a, a, a Turco, an Armando Turco show. And I did it with, I remember standing next to Neil Flynn, uh, who was outstanding, um, and Noah did it, and I don't know who else. 
Um, and I got out there and I did a couple scenes. And then that next Monday, I went back to the bar. And I'm not sure if I was chosen. But somewhere in there, Noah pulls me back and then indicates to me that it's okay that I can just simply come backstage. So that's, let's say, 97. And if you were in the in mafia, it would be like being a made man. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. basically, that's yeah. what it was. And thank goodness that my Frank Booth experience was so good and I cared so much for my team that I never, there was no ego involved anymore by 1997. I was just pleased as punch and I loved everyone and my now, By then, had you stopped smoking pot? No. How did you get off, stop smoking? I got married, man. Um, yeah, I got married. My wife didn't smoke pot that much. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm going to stop. I'm going to sm stop smoking pot. And that was 2000. And two, so I haven't stopped. I haven't smoked any pot since then. Oh, congratulations! That's fine. Pot's awesome, by the do you, way. Do you, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna smoke pot when I can, because uh, it's cool. It's fun. Looking back on it, do you, do you think it got into the way of your development in terms did it of get in the way of my development? That's a good question. Yeah, it did. I don't know. The whole I, I was in the pre-interview. I'm talking about Chicago gets in the way of. Of you, of my, uh, of your career going forward, sometimes, and the whole idea of IO being a clubhouse filled with friends where you can party your ass off with no threat of, of danger of any kind um, or harassment or feeling uncomfortable. You find a place. If you were popular and you liked high school, you when you were a senior, you probably never wanted it to end. At IO, there were, I had, there were twenty great people who I would see five nights a week because we had nothing else going on. And it was so much fun and so easy to be there. The work was so much fun. The, you know, the social life was so great that I didn't want it to end and there was no reason for it to end because you think that you're learning your craft when really what you're doing is just treading water. Mm. And the longer you stay at I.O., you can either fool yourself into like, yeah, no, I'm progressing, I'm progressing, I'm doing more shows, I'm in Chicago doing more and more improv. Um, but if you have a stronger intention into doing, breaking out of the, the improv scene and going into movie or television, then you would leave Chicago. Because being here means that you're gonna audition for a few television shows, maybe a couple movies, and then commercial work. I was talking to my wife about this, and I think you can relate to this. It's almost like we got lost in improv. Yep. It's such a comfortable trap, but you get lost in there. But it seems like now you're coming out of it because you told me you got a life coach. Yes, absolutely. I got a life coach. Um, Why did you get a life coach? I got a life coach because I'm a stay-at-home dad, and it, was, uh, it, it, it wears on a person to be a, a, the primary caregiver of, of two young boys. Um, and it was affecting my and it was affecting my, my mood uh, with my wife and with my kids, and I always when you're an actor and you have to stay home and you can't do your acting, you have this constant pull on you of I should be I should be doing more I want to be doing something else, um, and that that takes a toll on you uh, emotionally and mentally. So I go to a life coach, and we begin to ask questions and we just get curious about our feelings. If you're feeling frustrated about such and such why you ask yourself the question why and you get curious and then you find out some answers and you and you make realizations about things that you know that are bothering you and if a and then career came up a number of a, a number of months ago and i changed my agent 
and my life coach was also my old agent, um, and she said, you are seen in Chicago as blank, funny improviser guy, and that is all. And I was like, what? What? Really? I am. That's all I am. I know, but I can't, I'm not going to tell you because that's all I've done for the past 25 years has been funny improviser guy. Is that really how I'm perceived? <laughs> yeah, you know, off. So, I, uh, uh, so now I uh, have a, a little bit of a stronger intention of memorizing monologues and to audition for theater and the fact that I, I won't be doing more improvisation. I'll be doing more of other stuff as soon as my intention gets a little bit stronger. <laughs> How do you get your intention a little stronger? You have to like dedicate and it's practice, you know? Well, is this a life coach is your coach for practice. Do you look back and say, God, I wish I would have done this 10 years ago, 15 years ago? I don't think so. I was just so, I just loved it so much. Um, and I, I don't look back. I don't have those, that type of regret. I know that I can be an actor all the way up until I'm, I'm dead. Right. Uh, I have no. So you're not like, oh, like, I guess it was lost time. I wasn't. No. I mean, if there's. A sense to me, they're like, gosh, I would love to have been on SNL. Um, but then after knowing a bunch of people who got on SNL and then leave SNL. Would you later, like to have been what? on main stage? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, because that, you know, that's, that's a benchmark. That's a, a, a career benchmark in this town. Over um, SNL? Not over, I don't know. Over SNL? Uh, again, SNL would be great, but that's fame and a paycheck. You know, you don't do better work on SNL than they do on main stage. Mm -hmm. which, which scenes are funnier, SNL scenes or main stage scenes? Let me ask main you something. You seem funnier. very comfortable. You don't, you've been around a lot of people that have gone on. I've been around. Mm -hmm. it, the fame thing drives me nuts. It's less and less. But you don't seem to be bothered by it at all. No. And it's funny because people will say, about, you have so much respect in the improv community. So much respect. And people will be like, Paul Grande, underappreciated. Second City should have hired him. You've yeah. heard this stuff before, yeah. right? Right. How does that make you feel? It kind of feels bad. It makes you feel Are a you little serious? Bit bad. Yeah, because it's like, okay, uh, right, right? Uh, you, you suck just a little bit, and other people don't. Uh, not at all true. Um, but it's like, I don't, I, I don't, uh, it, you, I can appreciate the sentiment, but the fact is that if you are underappreciated, then you know, you're not appreciated by people. And um, it sucked then, and that was years ago. That was years ago it sucked. So when it was happening and when I was being called that, um, it was, okay, yeah, thank you, thank you. Let's talk about something else. I would much rather be, you know, you got the job. I would much rather have the job than be underappreciated. And, and, uh, uh, but that, again... I don't know when it happened. But do you know how respected you are in the improv? I think, yeah, I think I do. I think mm -hmm. I have an idea. Um, but now I'm so, I've been so separate from the improv community for six years that I but think But you still that, teach. I still teach one night a week. Mm -hmm. Yep. And what uh, have you, how, how have you seen the, the students? Students teach? are amazing. Um, and it has been such for, I've had um, five, five good classes in a row. Um, maybe maybe six, and uh, that is something that is that has been a you know a tidal shift in the ability of improvisers what, reaching why, their what? level four at I/O. So they're in level four, and, and they're coming in and like they've got a lot of experience. They have a lot of experience. What has changed over the years? Because there's more places to do it. 
You know, the students that we had 10 years ago had Annoyance, I.O., Playground, and Second City. Mm -hmm. And now all you have to do is get a team and have someone with enough gumption to be like, yeah, there's CIC and Up, and there's the backs of many bars, and um, there's such a strong, much stronger, vibrant college scene. You know, Jonathan Pitts can tell you about that. Um, that the people are coming in with, you know, two years of possible long-form experience before they get to the Improv Olympic Theater. And Improv Olympic Theater is just, you know, honing them and shaping what is already uh, a, a person that already has an improv intelligence. And then that, that is coupled with the, you know, only two or three people per class who are like, yeah, I just took an improv to dot, dot, dot. I have no theatrical ability or interest, but I do have interest in, you know, doing this. It scares me, it thrills me, blah, blah, blah. So let's improvise. Right now? Oh, we're going to improvise right now. Perfect. So um, we're going to take a suggestion. From what, them? Yes, from them. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. What would you like to take as a suggestion? A question. Okay, great. Yeah. Could we have a question uh, to start off? How old are you? How old are you? Now, uh, we haven't improvised in what? Probably, let's say, five years. Five years. But even when we were in Carl, we didn't do many scenes, because I was mm. intimidated by you. By me? Yes, I was, I was afraid. And we started improvising? All yeah. right. Now, yeah. what? Yes, you I know was. why? Because I probably come off as a bit of a jag-off. Don't I? Is that why? Because I'm a bit of a hard ass? Come on. Yes. The answer is yes. He pauses. Okay. I know. I know. I used to be all 10. I think it's because I stopped smoking the ganj. Did um, that change your personality? I don't know. I think maybe just being a parent uh, did. Um, and things have, you know, things no, have I never knew where I, I never knew where we, st where we stood. I, I have never been intimidated by you and only would love to do only scenes with you okay. from the moment that I well, saw I, you Well, also, you were always naked. the first. You were, thank you. You were the first person out. See, that's, been, that, that's the jag-off layover. No, I don't think it's the jag-off layover. And I'm like, this guy's got a lot of confidence and, you know. Yeah. I like to improvise. Yeah. It's, it honestly is that. Mm -hmm. um, there are, I mean, I understand what you're like intimidated to go out with. There's two very good friends of mine, Craig Kukowski and another improviser named Brian Boland, mm -hmm. who I love to improvise with but never do because I always think that they've got, that I'm going to screw up whatever they've got. So, I mean, I can understand Well, I, I felt that when I started to perform with TJ. Did you ever? No. Really? Yeah. How did you? Because I think I, w I came in uh, a year or longer before TJ, so I was already pretty confident with myself. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, I saw TJ when he was, you know, still honing his craft. So I saw the evolution of that individual performer. Okay. Um, so uh, we got the question, how old are you? Yeah. How do you break that down, that suggestion? Uh, I, for the suggestion, I would say 45. So my first instinct was to play my age mm -hmm. and not go any higher or odder than than reality. Okay. Um, and would begin with someone who has the experiences and intelligence and a lifestyle of a 45-year-old. Okay. And you don't know where you're going to put it. We're just going to discover it. No. Yeah, I'm just going to So you're it. starting with like a character point of view, basically. Yep. I'm going to be starting off with uh, a 45-year-old dad. Okay. You know, if the suggestion were something a little more exotic, then 
uh, my choice might be a little more exotic, but that one is too close to me to want okay. to force me anywhere. Else. And do you start with an emotion with this character, or you just no? I would I would start with um, I would I would if if I'm going to be other if I'm going to use a separate voice, I'm going to play. I'm going to play a, a point of view, a point of view, okay, um, or, or or not a point of view, an attitude, which is okay. different, a way of seeing, a way of seeing things, a way okay. of hearing people, and 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 yeah. And you're going to discover that in the moment. And I'll discover that in the moment. If I have time to get the to think a little bit about, and I'll initiate. But if you initiate, I'll decide in the moment based off of what I'm getting off of you, nicely. Okay, great. Let's go. Great. Are we doing it right here? Yeah, we're doing it right here. Great. What was that? Um, I was just putting uh, your son's uh, uh, project on the shelf there. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. You're, Can uh, I see it? You're... I'm Tad's dad. Okay, great. Yeah. I just need to see an ID. Sure. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Have you asked all the parents? Yes. It's security here in the school. I am. Happy to do. That. Oh my God, you are. You're you're his his father. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's that? What do you mean? Oh my God. No, I just I just I'm kind of surprised because he never he never talks about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, not all the kids are always yammering yeah. about their parents. Did you know that the this was, uh, you know, Dad Day? Um, not specifically. Yeah. Well, it started yeah. at five o'clock. It's it's six thirty now. Yeah. Well. He left crying. Okay, so he was here. He was, he was here. here. Yeah. He was here. Who got him? <laughs> Who um, picked him up? His uh, Zoila. Yeah. Zoila is his. Uh, <laughs> I almost said his keeper. Zoila is his baby. His is our nanny. Zoila. Is that how you refer to? And I almost said it. I think yeah. of her. I mean, she. Man, you know, that's her job. Maybe She's, you shouldn't. Uh, have maybe you shouldn't have slept with her. <laughs> how do you know that? You Let me show you. <laughs> See this drawing? That's a rather graphic representation. <laughs> that is your penis going in, into her yeah. vagina. Yeah. I mean, gee whiz, he got our bed perfectly. <laughs> we just got that headboard from Home, from, from home Depot. I put, it, I put it together, it was a kit. Do you want to take that, or should I give I'll it to you? I'll take this. I'll take okay. this. Um, all right, buddy. All right, buddy. There you go. You got it. I you got it. the chip. You got a chip. Yes. You going to cash that chip in? What do you mean? You're going to tell my wife. <laughs> That's the chip. The ruin this guy's life chip because you're pissed at him for coming an hour and a half late to your stupid dad fucking meeting. <laughs> could, could God! You, could you watch the language? There's kids in the next room. What, why are they here so late? Fine. Because they have rehearsal. What are they rehearsing? They're rehearsing a play. All right, are you going to do something about this or not? Can you just let it be cool? Can you just be cool? Is that what this is about? Yeah. You're, you're, you're having an affair with, with your nanny, and you, all you care about is that I'm going to tell your wife. Yeah, absolutely. There's a very good chance that it won't stop. 
You know, it's Tad. Hey, I'll tell you what. Let's bring it over to Tad. Let's bring it around to Tad. Aside from his, you know, epic drawing of genitalia, is there anything else that's going, you know, that's wrong with him? Yeah. All right. He hits the other kid. Your repressed anger, he's taking it out on the other kids. I'm not a psychologist, but that seems to be taking it a step further than what might be. I mean, he's taking my repressed anger. <laughs> I mean, it, it could be another reason. Do you think you're a good father? You know, oh. that's a great question. That's a great question. Am I a, a good father? Did you say great father or good no, father? No, I said good father. I am not a great father. Um, I'm a father who does things, some of them very, very good. <laughs> right? So let's, let's break it down, what, what I do good, right? I make a good breakfast in the morning. I teach him sports on weekends. He can swing a golf club. He can throw a baseball, although not catch one yet. And he can dribble a basketball. And at his age, I think that's right on the mark there. And what happens when he comes into to my classroom and he's crying all day because he wants to see his father, who he hasn't seen for in weeks? Listen, buddy, everyone's got a job. I got a job. I got a job. I got to go to my job. You know, his mother has a job. We both have jobs. That's why Zoila is there, you know. Is that really why Zoila is there? Of course that's why Zoila is there. The sex is... Another reason she's there, yes. But that's not why she was hired. I don't need a concubine. You don't? No, of course we all. Then why don't you just give her up? No. I don't want to. Well, I've got the chip. All righty, okay, here we go. Should I tell him tomorrow? Ted? Yeah. That I'm not going to, he's not going to have Zoila anymore in his life? Yeah. He's not going to have his favorite nanny who he spends his free time with, playing, now I imagining. Now I understand why he's so screwed up. Because of you. Hey, man. Do you, not, is this about getting I'm laid? Kind of is, that, is that how you look at life? I, I, love, I love getting laid. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth. If I'm going to be completely honest with you, you seem like a very honest guy, honest with me. I'll be honest with you. Getting laid is awesome. Um, his wife, uh, his, uh, my wife, his mother and I don't. Do you even know her name? Don't even. Gail? <laughs> my wife, Gail, Tad's yes. mom, yes. Gail? Yes, yeah. I know, I know her name. Gail Lauer is her maiden name. Her middle name is Louise. <laughs> you don't know anything else about her? I know who my wife is, and I know that I like to screw around with Zoila every once in a while, and he caught us once, and am I a good or a bad father? That is for the, that's for history to decide. <laughs> right now, this father is being the best father that he can be considering the pressures. Pressures. Did you see his report card? No, I'm sure, I'm sure. Because that, that's what we did, that's what we did for the, the dad. Well, the dads would come, the great dads would come with their kids. The and then they would talk about the greats. But since you weren't here, 
you didn't get an opportunity to What did hear. Tad say about his grades? Did you have an opportunity to ask him? Did he say anything? No, because the father wasn't here. <sighs> Can I see him? How's he doing? Oh, Does he really important. care about it? Yeah, I want him to do well. I don't want him to be one of those un not normal kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> what do you mean by that? You know, kids who aren't smart. Special needs kids? Yep. Or even a little bit just straight up dumb. Why don't you? <laughs> you know? why, don't, why, why, don't, why don't we just get to it? Retarded. No. No, no, no. I know he's not retarded. We took a test when he was in the womb. You know? He's not retarded. He doesn't have any of that. I just don't want him to be a dumb kid. And if he is tending towards dumb, then we can do something about it. I mean, I'm sorry he hits other kids. I mean, he's six. What's that mean? There's other kids in my class that don't hit. Yeah, but there are kids who do hit. I'm just saying that... There's one. But in your small sample size, there is one. In the is whole realm of six-year-olds, developmentally, I believe it's... There's 23 the people in the class. One kid hits. Well, let's move that out then. Let's keep going. Okay, there's another kindergarten classroom. Right. No one hits. There's 24 people in that. Great. That's 47. I don't know what to tell you, pal. My kid hits. It's not gonna, it's not gonna stop today, and it's not gonna stop tomorrow. Well, it's just like the father. He's just gonna keep sleeping with the nanny. It's not gonna stop today. It's not gonna stop tomorrow. You know, uh, there's a study that what parents say really doesn't have an effect on the kids, but it's what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I can agree with that. Um, I do a lot of shouting, you know, at home. Um, doesn't seem to work, so I can, I can get behind you on that one. What about the hitting? Him hitting? I don't know. No, 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 no. No, I don't hit myself. Oh, really? No, I don't. Where hit did myself. he learn it? Probably from television or video games, or perhaps anything uh, outside in his walk-a-day world. Why don't you just cop to day world. We're friends. No, we're not friends. Come I don't on, hit my, my son. Dad. I don't hit my <laughs> son. All right. You're challenging me the whole time. <laughs> okay. That was that was hard. That was hard. Challenging you. Yeah, the character. The character. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so... I felt like I was fighting you, and I, and I wanted to... My instinct is to find middle ground and a resting place. Okay. And you wouldn't let up. Not saying bad. I'm saying like, ah, I'm, this is not like, you jerk. I'm saying like, wow. I'm saying, wow, you were challenging me. Okay. In a good way. Good way. Sorry. That came no, no, off no, no, as tag no. off, didn't it, right? No, I, I, no I, because I, I don't know sometimes. I mean, did we have enough agreement in that scene? Uh, we absolutely had a complete agreement. Okay. Because I believe as soon as you say teacher and I say dad, jerk dad, caring teacher, it's agreement from then on. Whether or not we fight or have different points of view matters not to right. me. Because I knew just from the, I was like, okay, I'm, my job is just to make you a bigger jerk. Bigger yeah. Keep heightening, keep heightening, and keep heightening it. Right. And I'm, my tendency is to keep it in the realm of reality, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow myself, or I didn't in this case, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's kind of a guideline for me, to get there, to be further heightened by my scene partner mm -hmm. is tough for me. 
because I would, I would at some point I'd have to break the acceptable uh, reality of like yes, I like at the point where I, I do you hit him. If the answer is yes, there, my character becomes heightened, but to myself, I begin to play someone that I don't believe anymore. I don't. My dad character is now. Now I'm making stuff up. And it's hard to make stuff up, so most times I don't. So I keep it as close to the bone with maybe the shift in an outrageous point of view about not wanting to Can stop Can we just do as an experiment? Yeah. There's a turn of the scene. Yeah. To make the choice that you do hit him. Sure. Towards the end. Yeah. Just, just for a minute or so. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'll do it again? I'm, I'm fine. I'm good with that. Well, we'll just get up and do just a, a yep. couple minutes. The part where I'm yeah. saying... Uh, I, you know, okay. Right, yeah. You know, uh, you, you, you can be honest with me. My dad hit me. Yeah, my dad hit me too. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Do I hit my son? Yeah, it's up to you. Yes. Yeah. I give him a crack. Uh -huh. I give him a crack. You want to know? You want to feel it or you want me to just do it on the arm? Do it, <laughs> do it right? on the arm. Do right, it right on the arm, yeah. Um, let me get kind of excited about it. Are you drunk when you do it? No, 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 no. Well, maybe you're sometimes, angry when maybe you come sometimes. Home? I, hey, 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 everyone has a couple pops. Um, <laughs> so it's like, what are you doing? How's that? That's good. That hurt? Yeah, that hurt, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's good, right? It teaches them something. Well, it makes an imprint. Yeah, it makes an imprint. Sometimes yeah. screaming doesn't work. How often but, do you do it? You know, I don't know. Let's say. Three, four times a week? Yeah. That's, that's, that's what my dad did, yeah. 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 I, my dad wasn't even that rough. I turned out really close. well because he did it. Yeah? Yeah. You did? Yeah. I think it's the yeah. best discipline you can do. Don't you? I didn't expect that from you. No. <laughs> I thought you were setting me up and going to give me the old no. spike. Are you familiar with DCFS? Uh, of course. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know about it? Yes, I know all about it. I've seen it on TV. Yeah. yeah. Why do you say that? Because what you just told me, I'm going to have to report. You go ahead and do that. You go ahead and do that, and we'll see how far it goes. I know that I'm not scared of a report to DCFS. Because there's been other complaints, right? No, I don't. Not, there's been really? a couple. There's yeah. been a couple. <laughs> so in the whole years of his life, this would probably be the second time, third time that the. Uh, state agency has been involved, but every time else has been. <laughs> okay, so Great. how was that? So that was fine, because you did a, that was, uh, I didn't go far beyond my acceptable reality levels, right. shall we say. Um, uh, but it gets into that, it gets into that moment of choice. Mm -hmm. That moment of choice where I, my dad, my character breaks down and does feel the appropriate remorse for all of this, mm -hmm. or the character and the improviser continues to improvise their way out of fault. And it's too easy to, so I was making an easier choice, I believe. And uh, so there's two things. For the sake of a rea realistic portrayal and my desire to portray my characters authentically, I was looking for the 
realistic counter inventions to your gift inventions to my dad character, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So far, so good. Um, but the other side of the coin, the other side is if I allow you to gift and continue to gift me as this ugly person, really owning bad behavior is also something that I like to play and not apologizing for bad behavior. Um, and there was probably some resistance to making that choice to go completely over and become apologetic and remorseful and even, you know, completely regretting but I the think stuff that I did. The choice of like not apologizing for something really bad is always a great choice. And it's always fun for the audience to watch. I think so too. I think you it's know. compelling. Is there anything you would have done differently? Or we could have done differently? I don't know. I think only for my It went really hard towards the heightening of the dad character. Right. I think I would have enjoyed also some other type of conversation. Okay. You know, you, we, we didn't know anything about you. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I, I didn't feel the right moment to turn the conversation towards you. We did in that second one where you talked about your dad, but that was right. the only time we found out anything about the teacher character and you your character is is as vital to this scene to this world that we created as mm -hmm. mine mm -hmm. and i am usually very concerned with the balance of uh, of of uh, action and 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 the balance of so what could giving. i have done because i think that no 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 i'm, I'm oh, saying no. Is just that's like um, a character like that is in my wheelhouse. I can play that, you know, keep lobbing that stuff. Right. Up. But what could I have done to open up my character? I think you would have to, well, considering where you started, mm -hmm. I think you would have to deny yourself. You'd have to not deny your own character, and that would be unfortunate and, and not a very good play. Because mm -hmm. you can't, uh, the way you started off with... You're having, this is a picture of sex, right. and your son's in trouble. Mm -hmm. For you to ever change your tack in conversation and be like, you know, so yes, we're concerned about maybe your sex. But anyway, <laughs> new conversation would be completely inappropriate and, mm -hmm. and, and deny the believability that we established in those first few lines. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that there, are, there is any other course, or mm -hmm. there was no better course for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, considering the way those first few lines went, that was the that was the arrow, that was the direction, um, and I don't think any other scene would have been better than the one that we did, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but in general, as a whole, I like to have, I love sho shoving that spotlight over to my scene partner during the course of my improv scenes. But that doesn't happen all the time, does it? I mean. I, mostly manufactured. <laughs> I, I, I try to make that happen. Okay. All right, we're going to take some questions from the audience. Good. Okay, great. If we could turn the house lights up. Mm -hmm. Got a lot of people here. Great. Uh, question for Paul. Uh, I don't speak Polish. Great. <laughs> right. Hi, Tom. Hey, Paul. How are you? Good. Yeah. What do those kids do about black 
right. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I unfortunately don't have to. At, my st at the Improv Olympic where I teach, I'm teaching the Herald level, which is the, for the, the long form Herald, and we break down each part of that long form. And there aren't many, there's not a lot of room for uh, scene work. There's no day of, of just scene work. Um, so anything, I just have to, I just mention my points of view about starting off slowly and an authentic portrayal and Taking your scene work at a considered pace is something that I say over and over and over again. Right, Jeremy? Um, um, and I say it often enough that I hope it sinks in. And, and again, to go to Jimmy's point, it absolutely, it absolutely has, because most of the students and their improbability has been, has been wonderful. And I think there are level three teachers at I.O. Um, I think most of them are really putting the right emphasis in the right places for that improv scene work. Um, I don't know a single teacher who teaches at, at I.O. who teaches the game of the scene. Uh, if they do, they, may, they might spend a week on it or two. But usually you'd have to go outside to Kevin Mullaney and, and, uh, and Under the Gun Theater to, uh, to learn the game of the scene and an authentic philosophy behind pulling that, 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 that off. Great. Let's take another question. Mm -hmm. Right here. You mentioned earlier uh, you felt like um, at a certain point at I.O. or any theater you should be treading water. You mm -hmm. should be stuck in the improv. So I know it's subjective, but how do you realize when you're treading water and you need to leave or go to wherever else in Europe or L.A.? Like at what point do you say to yourself, wow, I'm getting stuck in this too much? When there is... You have to, I think you have to ask yourself how important is another style, another artistic expression? How important is it to you? I had to, someone had to sit me down in a chair. My coach had to sit me down and we had to talk about it. Like, what do you want to do? I'd love to do theater. Great. Theater is not improv. Stop. Find the things you need to do. So there is, someone has to, you have to either do it yourself sit in a dark room or get someone to talk about it with you and say, I want to do blank. And you have to go do it. And, or you have to have a stronger intention. I mean, I believe that you can get to movies and television through a strong theater credit here in Chicago. So you can stay here. Pasquese is a great example. Yeah, Pasquese, yeah, plus, TJ and Dave. Plus other people. Um, they have a great first improv, or second slash second city, then a theater cred, and then movies. Never living in LA for a while, I don't know them all that well, but um, basically staying in Chicago. But there was, a, there was a cutoff for him, and it was no longer second city stuff, it was all theater, and therefore, and then movies because of it. I'm sure he decided to make a clean break from one to go towards the other. And it really was, I had to have someone tell me you've got to you've got to decide to have a different intention and that that's that's the moment someone will tell you or you have to decide next week i'm going to start learning monologues that's what Great. i have to do another question mm -hmm. right over here oh yeah you talked about being the asshole yes uh, and being the guy who initiates and drives mm -hmm. the point of view how do you roll that back and how do you stop 
How do you, it's, it was um, someone else, the, Craig Kukowski put a different priority in my mind without ever saying it directly. And there's a very good chance that I could be wrong. Maybe I wasn't. Um, but looking back and how, anyway, uh, so there is, you, you'll, you'll, you'll come at it um, if you have any inkling that you might be, you might be. Um, <laughs> I don't want to hesitate to say that you are. If, um, I didn't have any inkling during it. Looking back, I think I had it. Um, but I was, I was looking for some other way to succeed. And succeeding without trying to be funny worked. I tried it out a couple times, a few shows in a row, trying not to say anything funny trying to play the tenderness, trying to play the realism of it. And I still got what I wanted, which is a response from the audience. And the other, there were other side benefits, too, which is keeping my head open for possibilities of theme and connection. And um, so it was kind of a self-realization, probably brought on the inspiration from watching uh, people of Jimmy's generation and my coach, Craig Gakowski, that that combination tipped the balance a couple, three years after I started at Second City, and I've never looked back into that abyss of, I know, I, I think I can think of funny shit, or, or bits. You know, let's get out there and do some bits is a phrase that I've hated now for 18 years. And I used to say it all the time. Let's go out there and just do some bits. No, I won't, um, ever. Great, another question? Thanks, Elvis. Right over here. Yeah. Uh, what happened in the time that you left um, uh, theater school and then you became a broadcaster? <laughs> Worked at Block as a manager for Blockbuster Video. Um, <laughs> that's it. Um, and then I, when I was a kid living at home, I used to have a Second City Matchbook. I used to put that in my in my mirror, you know. Um, and without ever really having a strong, strong intention to like, I've always wanted to be on, you know, without having that like childhood dream of being on main stage, I knew I wanted to stay in theater and Second City was the first thing that popped into my head. So I had to go home, I had to make some money, um, I had to kind of settle myself. I, uh, I don't know what caused me to move back home because I think I wanted to make more money. So I wanted to get rid of the apartment, move back in with my parents, and I did for two years. Got that job, and then took the classes out at North uh, at, in Rolling Meadows, and then moved right back into the city and got a job in the city again and started up at I/O. So yeah, I worked as a manager at a blockbuster, a couple blockbuster videos. Um, we got to wrap this up. What yeah. advice would you give somebody starting out in improv? Today? Starting out. Uh, after all of that, I would say please take your time. You, depending on your age, uh, age can be a wonderful, uh, can be a valuable asset to your, to your improvisation. Don't, don't rush the, your progression and your ability to, to do the work. It's the, the, I would, you'll feel better and it, will, and it will, the realizations will come to you faster the less you push for them. And that's what I've learned going through. So I, would, I pushed really hard in the first couple of years. And then after I stopped pushing the realizations of ability and, and confidence and what I loved about each other, other people in improv came. 
tumbling down a hill like a, like a huge boulder. Thank you, Paul, for being Thank our you. guest. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. There you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. Episode number 96. We're four away from 100. So if you have any ideas what we should do for our 100th episode, please email me. Uh, at uh, jimcorain at gmail.com. I love that we went back in the improv scene and, and did a little part where where we could have gone with it. And I also felt a little shame because uh, that I always play negative characters, you know? That character that I played is in my wheelhouse. It's my go-to. And my wife said to me after the show, she's like, you know what, Jimmy? We did another episode after that with Poonam Patel, which will be the next episode. And, and she said... Why don't you play positive for a change? So hopefully that will happen. Uh, um, so uh, I want to thank my guest, Paul Grande. And you can catch him in Armando. And he's also, I don't have the information because it hasn't been released, but TJ and Dave uh, of TJ and Dave fame will be doing a sketch show at their new theater, The Mission. And we wish them a lot of luck. And Paul will be in that. with a, It's a wonderful cast. And TJ and Dave are both directing that. Uh, I want to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher, who makes me sound so slick and so professional and does such a great job with this. Thank you, Dan. Also, our home base, and that's the people here at Stage 773 here in Chicago. Uh, thank you for treating me like a rock star. Thanks for making this show possible. Uh, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my improv blog, go and sign up for my newsletter. It's going to make you a better improviser. Every week we send you out a, a, a different uh, blog that that has something that will help you off stage or on stage to become a great improviser. Also, it will have all the information of my upcoming September classes of the Artist Low Comedy. We're on Feral Audio, and Feral Audio is a podcast collector of some of the coolest, funniest, creative people in the world. People like Chelsea Peretti, people like Dan Harmon, people like Todd Berry and Steve Agee and Matt Dwyer, and the list goes on and on. Check it out. I love these people. It's feralaudio.com. We're also on Facebook, so go to Improv Nerd Facebook page and like us because it's it really helps with my low self-esteem. We're on t- Twitter, so you can follow us at Improv underscore nerd. Uh, check us out. We also have a YouTube channel where we put clips up uh, of uh, the episodes, so, some highlights. So check that out. I, I think I'm done plugging here. I, I'm exhausted. I, I want to thank Hotel Lincoln, and especially I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly-collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God.
Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, <laughs> oh my God. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao Bella, it's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh my 